boy was only 13 when he died of an overdose. Another was 18 months as the death toll has rose. With fentanyl mixed with heroin and a 10-year-old that died, our country is in a crisis as our youth seek suicide. The attempt to reduce supply has not removed it from our hand. It's time we offer hope by reducing the demand. Four children in Ohio who awoke and found them dead. They walked into their room and found their parents in their bed. A three-year-old girl whose parents neglected to check died from an overdose of meth and subutex. An 11-year-old from Pittsburgh overdosed last year. What happened to those days when we started with a beer? Look at how things are as we are improving our technology. We ask to speak the truth, but we punish real honesty. The bullying of today doesn't have to end at school. You post embarrassing videos and show that you're a fool. We teach our youth delusions, pretending it's not real. Condoms should be offered, as harm reduction is ideal. Maybe we should teach them how to safely test your dope before they stick it in their arm as they're not dangling from a rope. Kids today seem fragile, very emotionally disconnected. Nothing like we used to be, as we fought when disrespected. Sensitivity has shaped our culture, and laws prevent what's right. Teach our kids the truth so we can keep them in the light. Don't worry about the history. In fourth or fifth grade, it's the self-esteem and life skills that mustn't be delayed. Parents and teachers today must help them find a passion, determination, and empathy. It's time to have compassion. The death toll is rising, and just say no isn't right. We must begin the lessons, or the flames will soon ignite. Tell your kids you love them, and hold them close to you. If we don't do something now, you may lose one, or even two. That was a poem I wrote that started chapter 13 titled, Healing Our Future, and Pain, Failure, and Misery Are the Stepping Stones to Success. How do we address such an issue that we're all facing? Solutions are everywhere. Complete abstinence, as stated by the 12-step members. Medication management with Subutex or Suboxone. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Oh, well, let's move on. Treatment programs as advocated by the government and believers that they work. Treatment programs don't work, according to certain people in our communities. Who wrote this? I'm getting confused. All right, there must have been a glitch, so we'll continue. Certain newspapers claim that non-medical detox facilities in California should be closed. Insurance companies refuse to pay for inpatient detox for many individuals, which are medical. Okay, let's scratch this part. I'll, I'll edit this part out. All right, I'm going to start this over as I normally do. All right, here we go. My name is Eric McCoy. Welcome back to Recovering Through Highness. I took a little break from this podcast to record an audio version of Pain, Failure, and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success, which should be available soon on Amazon and iTunes. As I've been searching for solutions to chemical dependency, I've reached a problem. Nothing makes sense in the real world. They may sound good on paper, especially from politicians who have no real experience or expertise in this topic. News reporters who love to take things at face value without even caring to understand the mindset of providers when making accusations. It's time for an in-depth look at some very interesting questions that are interpreted as incompetent providers. And I want to begin with a statement. I have no personal interest or gain from what I am going to say. 
I've attempted to reach out to politicians, the governor, and specifically individuals with the Orange County Register so the problems can be looked at from the entire picture. You know what? No response. I see this as nobody cares, but they do kind of create an illusion with their stories that this means a lot to them. So I'd like to begin by sharing to my listeners that I am the horrible person that the papers identify as making the problems in the industry. It's me. I'm a six-time convicted felon who was highly addicted to methamphetamine. I'm highly educated with a degree in college and 17 years of experience in the field. Okay, that contradicted the paper's argument, so I'm going to stick to the story. What the hell would I know? Solutions to the problems in this industry are highly confusing because depending on who you ask, their solution will most likely differ from the next person that you ask. Since I do have a platform now that allows me to share information to the public, I've decided to discuss the things that I would like to share with the individuals that I identify, which will discredit some of their articles so I can create the entire picture. So many articles have been written about clients dying because the facilities waited too long to call 911. In 17 years of experience, I know the reason for this. Insurance fraud has been a huge topic, and Terry with the Orange County Register is the quote-unquote expert for that paper. Terry, I ask you, and yes, I have attempted to contact her. Can you explain why a clinician must commit insurance fraud if they want to stay ethical? Interesting question. And you know what? I have an answer to this. Non-medical detox facilities should be closed, according to certain individuals, because doctors and nurses need to be on site at all times. There are very good non-medical detox facilities who truly care about their clients, and they realized this long before this was ever written by any of the papers, and they cared so much that they regularly broke the rules of California. Senator Jerry Hill is another individual that I saw in the paper. He wrote a legislation, 11834.015. The department shall adopt the American Society of Addiction Medicine treatment criteria or an equivalent evidence-based standard as the minimum standard of care for licensed facilities and shall require a licensee to maintain those standards with respect to the level of care to be provided by the licensee. Wow, that makes a huge impact. Okay, that was sarcasm. ASAMs is already used by a lot of facilities and are based on six dimensions. How vague and unimportant is this bill, which I will explain. We're going to look at these and real-life stories behind this. Also, according to Jerry Hill, I may not be able to work in the industry unless I get more education to become licensed. Now, I teach at a school, and one of the classes is the Theoretical Approaches to Counseling and Therapy. I've spent 17 years learning new things constantly. So going back to school to be able to work in this field will cost me an enormous amount of money so I can learn probably a lot of the things that I already know. And if it is new to me, then it's most likely has no real-life concepts Otherwise, it probably would have presented itself at one point in time. Question number one, why have facilities delayed calling 911? All right, I want to say that this is not an excuse, and this does come down to ethics, since our number one responsibility 
is to always look out for the best interests of the clients. Now, I want to explain to you why providers, directors order this of not calling 911 or making sure that it's of real importance before you actually do this. Again, ethically, call 911. Please do not care at all about the reasoning that I'm about to give. And I have violated this many, many, many times by calling 911 immediately and not going by what I am about to say. So I'm going to take you back to 2008, 2009 in Newport Beach. Now, a lot of people may have heard of the acronym NIMBY. NIMBY is not in my backyard. So NIMBY is kind of a joke and something we've laughed about a lot for a lot of years in this industry. People love treatment programs. They want to see people get help. But you know what? Not in my backyard. And everybody says this. Nobody wants it. So where do you put them? I don't know. But, you know, we probably need to just stick everybody out on a deserted island somewhere, I guess, because it's obviously going to be in somebody's backyard. So NIMBY. Now, all right. So 2008, 2009, I was the director of a program in Newport Beach, California called Newport Coast Recovery. And out of all of the 17 years that I have worked in this industry, I have never had anybody die in a facility that I work for. Never had that. And one of the reasons was, was that I was very meticulous and I really did care. And if there was emergencies or there was situations, I would call 911. So paramedics would show up, police would show up. And that was good for saving lives, but this was not good for the business. And everybody knows this that works in the industry. In Newport Beach in 2008, 2009, the people that lived on the peninsula in Newport Beach decided to complain a lot about the treatment facilities that were there. Now, the program that I worked for, we did not create a lot of problems. We were very meticulous. People were required to stay on the property. They were not allowed to roam around the city. Eyes on them all the time, making sure that they were safe. But again, I did have to call 911 at times. There was times that I had to call the pet team because we had a psychiatric emergency. So the people of Newport Beach complained a lot to the city. And the city decided to implement this idea that all treatment programs had to get permits to operate in the city. Now, to gain the permit, you had to go through these public hearings. Now, I had a wonderful opportunity to experience this. And this was such a crazy scenario because not only did these public hearings have to take place, but they posted signs on our building about these public hearings. Now, drug and alcohol treatment programs are designed to be confidential. We don't post big signs outside of residential facilities about who we are. But now they're posting these things on the windows, notifying everybody that we are a drug and alcohol treatment program. Does violate federal law. Title 42, Part 2, confidentiality, which are the most stringent confidentiality laws regarding drug and alcohol treatment programs. So I went to these hearings and there were neighbors, there were people from the city, there were people that lived on the far end of Newport Beach or probably really had no contact at all with anybody in our program. But all these people came and it was an enormous bitch session. 
they're complaining about a bike that had been stolen out of my garage 60 days ago. They don't know who it was, but it must have been somebody from our program. They complained about noise. They complained about police having to go there. They complained about the paramedics having to arrive at the facility. So what does this do to providers? Well, providers ultimately say, well, wait a minute. Okay, we need to make sure 100% that 911 needs to be called before we actually make that call so that we don't have to go through this nightmare that we have gone through or other places having seen it, heard it, or experienced anything similar. And that is the reason that a lot of places delay. I had worked at another program in Temecula, and in Temecula, there was that same conversation. The neighbors or anybody that was within an eye shot of our facility, which was really literally out in the middle of wine country, okay, only call 911 if it's an absolute emergency, if you need to. Now, I broke that consistently because if I even felt that there was a possibility, I did call 911. Because my ethics and ethical responsibility is to always look out for the best interest of the client before anything else. Now, ethics also does revolve around the idea of looking out for the best interest of the company, too. So you do come into this, what we call ethical dilemmas. Because again, if I'm going to make sure that I provide the best services to the client, I need to make sure that I actually have a facility to be able to provide those services to the client and not get closed or not get shut down or have these other issues. And so this has created a nightmare in this industry. And then we have individuals from, you know, the newspapers that blast out all of these horrible things about, you know, different topics about this industry. And so it constantly puts it in people's mind, consistently puts it in people's mind. Paramedics show up. Oh my God. You know, I'm so sick and tired of these paramedics arriving at this facility. We need to do something. And so what do providers do? They stop calling. Now, I'm not saying that's right, but this is a reality. Again, I've worked in this industry long enough. I know how people think. So that's the question number one. Question number two. Insurance fraud has been a huge topic. And again, as I had said, Terry with the Orange County Register is the quote-unquote expert for that paper. And I asked Terry, can you explain why a clinician must commit insurance fraud if they want to stay ethical? Now, the interesting part about this is this is also going to relate a little bit to Jerry Hills, Senator Jerry Hills' idea about the American Society of Addiction Medicine Treatment Criteria, ASAMS. I worked in this industry before many insurance companies paid for treatment. So most of the people that came through the programs that I worked for from 2003 up until 2014, 15, it was all private pay. There was no insurance payment. The programs that I worked for were getting paid by. I liked those days because it was much simpler in terms of treatment. Now, obviously, back in those days, too, you know, places were not charging $4,000, $5,000 a day. We did not get into this industry for money, because if we wanted to get rich, wrong industry to get into. We got in this industry because we actually genuinely cared. We actually felt like we had something to offer. And things were simpler in those days. 
since treatment programs need to get paid because of being able to stay open, obviously any business needs to get money to be able to stay in operation, the individual comes into treatment and they do a pre-cert. And the pre-cert basically states, okay, this is the symptoms that this person is experiencing. This is what's going on. And the insurance company will authorize a level of care and the amount of days that they'll give. And then they usually will set a utilization review date to go over their progress and how things are going and to see if they want to maintain that same level of care or drop down to a lower level of care. Now, according to Jerry Hill and the concept of using ASAMs, I'm going to use an example of a program that actually uses ASAMs. And the clinician may do the utilization review form that basically identifies how they're doing, the progress they're making, what they're working on. They go into 12-step meetings. What's their motivation? Do they seem to care? And on that form, they will state what level of care based on ASAMs that they fit into for the criteria to be in that level of care. So we're going to hypothetically say that the individual that we're speaking of is in a residential level of care. And the clinician has been working with this person, finds that this person is really struggling with cravings, is having a very hard time controlling emotions, and is in real fear that if this person leaves this level of care, that they are going to relapse and they're going to potentially die because, let's say, this individual came from a hospital after overdosing and came into the program. So there is that potential. Now, the clinician has used ASAMs. And based on the information in ASAMS has basically stated that, yes, okay, the American Society of Addiction Medicine's treatment criteria states that this person needs to remain in a residential level of care. And that information then goes to a biller, or you may have somebody within the treatment program that does the utilization reviews. And so somebody calls the insurance company, provides the information, states that, yes, we are requesting that they have another seven days in the residential level. And the caseworker may say on the phone, I'm sorry, I cannot approve that. We'll have to set you up with a peer-to-peer or a doc-to-doc. You're still going off the ASAMS criteria, but then now you were denied. So then you call or you have a doctor that does a doc-to-doc, or you can have the clinician maybe that does a peer-to-peer which is still with a doctor on the other end that works for the insurance company. And many times it's already been determined that it's a no before even the call takes place. I've done peer-to-peers in the past. I've gotten on the phone with these doctors. I had one individual that said, okay, what's the name of the client? What's their date of birth? Okay, thank you. And then hung up the phone. And that was apparently our peer-to-peer which the individual was just asking information that they already had and no information to determine whether this person needs that level of care. Now, I will say there has been times where I have been able to do a peer-to-peer and we have gotten those days in in that scenario, but many times you get denied and it's still based on the ASAMS criteria. Okay, now we come to the non-medical detox facilities that should be closed according to certain individuals because doctors and nurses need to be on site at all times. 
There's a lot of claims that people die in these non-medical detox facilities. And I can honestly tell you that it is a result of negligence and it is a result of unethical behaviors why these individuals die. does not necessarily have anything to do with the fact that they're a non-medical detox facility because they were not handled appropriately. Now, it is very important for a non-medical detox facility to do a screening, a very extensive screening, to determine the level of care that this individual needs. So they can use ASAMS also to define what level of care this person needs. So if you're a non-medical detox and you're dealing with somebody that has been drinking extensively pints of vodka a day for six years, that individual would probably need a inpatient detox, which is a medical detox. So again, the screening process, if it's done appropriately, should determine whether that individual needs a medical or a non-medical detox facility. Alcohol and sedative hypnotics, benzos and barbiturates are the only two classifications of drugs that withdrawal can kill you. Opiate withdrawal won't kill you, make you want to die, but it won't kill you. Meth, coke, all of these others have no deadly withdrawal symptoms as a result of coming off of them. Now, this does not take into account other underlying medical issues that individuals may have. So some people may come into a detox facility and have a heart attack during that period of time, but that is not a direct result of the withdrawal from the chemical in and of itself. Which also brings us to another consideration that many times treatment programs, even through their screening process, are only able to base the information that they have off of what the individual or potential client is actually telling them. And I have worked at treatment facilities where individuals have failed to disclose certain medical conditions that they have, came into the facility, and we learned of these medical issues and determined on our end that this person was unsafe to be at this level of care. So I've gotten on the phone with the insurance company, or our billers have gotten onto the phone with the insurance company, and recommended that they go to a higher level of care. The insurance company would deny it. So now we're actually stuck with somebody who has these potential underlying issues in a non-medical detox facility, with the risk of losing their life, and the insurance company refusing to put them at a higher level of care. Does this sound fair? Does this sound fair to the treatment program? Because now you're actually stuck with this person. You could either say, all right, I'm sorry, but we cannot have you at this facility, so you need to leave, and them not actually having any place to go, which would again put liability under the program, or you decide to, you know what, we need to keep this person because we don't have any other place to send them. I've had this problem many, many times where I've attempted to get this person out of our facility into another facility for their best interest, and we're unable to do it. It's similar to the idea of individuals that had come from out of state somewhere to our treatment facility, and they became a danger to themselves. They were making statements that they were suicidal or potentially would harm themselves. And so we would get them into a psychiatric hospital only for that hospital to hold them for 15 hours, 
24 hours and to release them because that individual knew exactly what to say. So once again, because this person is from out of state and this person came from our treatment program, this person is automatically released back into our custody. What do you do? And this is another issue that I have personally struggled with many times over the years in this industry. Because again, my goal is to always look out for the best interest of the client. And sometimes through your attempts at looking out for the best interest of the client, you hit roadblocks. So if you get denied on the doc-to-doc or the peer-to-peer, you have an opportunity for two more. So you can request another one, which actually goes to an outside entity, but obviously is still being paid by the insurance company. So there's still a interest on the side of these doctors to deny. And if that one gets denied, you have an opportunity for a third. And you also run into the possibility that throughout this entire process of requesting the same level of care that they're not approving, you may not get paid for any of the days that you're going through this if they never do approve it. Now, to answer the question, can you explain why a clinician must commit insurance fraud if they want to stay ethical? And again, I'm going to explain the answer on this. If a clinician, based on ethics, there's autonomy, which is ultimately what does the client want? Beneficence, which is always doing good. You have non-maleficence, which is to do no harm. And then you have fidelity, which has to do with trustworthiness. And so if a clinician has determined that this individual and what is best for this individual and to do good for this individual, beneficence, is to keep them in that level of care. And if you recommended or even allowed the possibility for this individual to go to a lower level of care, knowing that the possibility of relapse and ultimately death, because let's say this person did come in after having an overdose, is pretty high, then as a due to non-maleficence, which is to do no harm, you would be highly unethical to allow or even to approve this individual to go to a lower level of care. Now, here's where it becomes insurance fraud. And this is what a lot of programs do. This is also stuff that papers have written about as well. There are two types of insurance fraud in terms of billing. And you have upcoding and undercoding. So upcoding is where you are providing services at a lower level than what you're billing. So you're ultimately, if you were doing drug and alcohol treatment, you were providing outpatient, but you were billing for residential. That's insurance fraud. That is obviously a huge problem. That should not be done at all. But I am going to agree a little bit with the undercoding. This insurance company denies that this person needs to remain in a residential. And again, if you even implied that you were okay with it, knowing that potentially you're doing harm, you are being unethical. And so what programs are doing a lot of times is they will actually keep them in the residential, but bill for a lower level of care. So if they were billing for PHP, which is basically an outpatient, and they had them remain in a residential, which is a higher level of care, they are committing insurance fraud. And again, that's called undercoding. So again, a clinician, from an ethical standpoint, needs to commit insurance fraud if they want to stay ethical. Crazy, huh? I bring this topic up because I'm very, very curious um, 
And I would love to get the answer from Jerry Hill and possibly Terry from the Orange County Register and the other experts that are involved in this treatment industry and seem to have lots of knowledge and information that when you were in treatment before and you were coming off of methamphetamine, and one of the articles that I read also from Terry was her declaration that it has been stated that outpatient programs are just as effective as residential treatment programs. So again, I'd like to ask you when you were in detox or residential before, or you potentially did outpatient for your meth abuse, how easy was it to do outpatient and not have the true support of the inpatient scenario where you're completely able to be removed from your situation? So when I had relapsed back in 2013, my body was so physically dependent upon methamphetamine and I did not have any ability to think clearly. My decision making was completely gone. I'm highly depressed. I did opt to go into a residential program because I knew myself enough to know that being at home or being out on my own And my mind telling me that all of this depression and all of this anxiety and all of this horrible things that I am feeling can be fixed with one simple thing, methamphetamine. It would fix it quickly. It would take it all away. And so if I'm home and I don't have that support that I gained from being in a residential treatment program, I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have made it. Even though I really wanted it, I wouldn't have made it. So again, I ask, when you were in treatment before, since you appear to be an expert on this, and you were able to do outpatient in lieu of your residential treatment, that if you could please explain to me how effective that was and how you were able to do it with that true dependency. And yes, I know I'm being sarcastic here, but these are things that really do bother me because non-experts, people that have no insight into the real life things involved with this industry or being a client or being a provider that works in this industry, how we have these huge roadblocks that are constantly hit upon. You have neighbors that can't stand that you're there. You call 911 because an emergency has happened only to lead to an attempt by the city to close you down because of the noise, the insurance companies that are consistently blocking you from being able to do an effective job and look out for the best interest of your clients at all times. And then on top of that, you got the media that just blasts horrible things about this industry in general. It doesn't really even talk about the good stuff. As I brought up before about the court system, I had an opportunity. And what I opted to do was when I brought clients into my program in Anaheim and they succeeded and they completed and they did well, I was able to actually bring them back to court to let the judge see that, you know what, there is success. There are people that make this because again, all they see is bad. All they see is the negative. All they see are the ones that relapse and end up back in the court system back to prison, but they don't see the success. And so are treatment programs at fault? Some of them, yes. Is the media at fault? 
Absolutely, in some aspects. Are the insurance companies at fault? Completely, in some areas. Are senators that create bills that are really ineffective in terms of what we're actually looking at because they seem to have very little information on, again, the real life stuff? I can spend my life in school and I can learn from a book standpoint all kinds of information and knowledge. But does that work in real life all the time? No. I've worked with a lot of therapists. They got master's degrees and they come into this industry and they're working in this industry and they have no idea what they're doing. They don't have any understanding from a real life perspective of what this looks like. Yeah, they saw it in a book, but in real life, only a small glimpse of what you learn in school will actually apply. I want to thank everybody for listening. And again, keep an eye out for my audio version of Pain, Failure, and Misery are the Stepping Stones to Success. And I look forward to talking to you guys soon.